What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Computer, this is Data. I'm an android. I'm a... basketball? I was processing all of the information. Processing. It's one of those idiots who believe in analytics. Rangers speak basketball? Analytics was crap. Does not compute. Just because you got good stats doesn't mean you're a good team. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Lakers Exceptionalism Podcast. I am your host for today, Krangis, Tim. Uh, Tom is not with us today. He is taking the day off. But today, we are coming off a nice Lakers victory over the Denver Nuggets in which the Lakers really shut down that Denver offense in the second half, blazed through with a strong third and fourth quarter, and had a really, really nice, impressive win with some garbage time there at the end. We are today going to talk about just kind of this quarter of the season. I'm not sure if we're exactly at the quarter point. I think we're a little bit past it, but this is going to be our quarterly review where we are going to just talk about a little bit of what has happened, where the team is doing well, where the team might be struggling, what they have to work on, and then, you know, why LA may or may not be the, the title favorite still, and if not, you know, what are the paths to not winning or what are the paths to winning for this team and we are going to start with just reviewing some of the usage of players so far and we are going to lean on our b-ball index offensive archetypes we have what 12 of those there are four big man archetypes we have roll and cut digs so like your javel mcgee's we have uh stretch bigs like Marcus Gasol, for example, this year is a stretch big. We have post scores, so like a Joel Embiid is a post score. Anthony Davis this year is a post score, and then we have versatile bigs who are kind of doing a little bit of everything. Then we have our off ball guards and wings. There are three types of shooters. We have stationary shooters. They're guys that are just kind of catching and shooting. They're not sprinting into shots or coming off of off ball screens or anything. We have our movement shooters who move a little bit around to be shooting. KCP is an example of that. And then we have our off-screen shooters. The Lakers don't have any of those, but those are guys like a J.J. Redick or a Duncan Robinson last year, Davis Bertans this year. Those are players using pin downs, flare screens as a, a primary source of offense for them and really pressuring the defense through in, engaging multiple defenders in the same action. So there's there's a progression there. Stationary shooters become movement shooters usually who become off-screen shooters. That's the evolution there. The last off-ball player archetype that we have are the athletic finishers. So these are guys that they're they're not on ball. They're they're operating off ball with lower three point attempt rates. They're going to be more cutting and getting putbacks, a little bit of doing it all here and there. Um, and then we have our four on ball archetypes. These are guards and wings generally who have the ball in their hands. We have primary ball handlers. We have secondary ball handlers. Uh, primary more initiating the offense. Think Rajon Rondo 
uh, secondary ball handlers. They're still guys doing guard stuff, but they're not really that primary point of attack, point of organizing the offense. So THT this year is a good secondary ball handler example. And then we have our slashers and our shot creators. Slashers, uh, maybe like a De'Aaron Fox or Dennis Schroeder this year, they are on-ball guys who have lower three-point attempt rates. They're more trying to get to the rim. And then the shot creators, LeBron's a good example. Um, These are players who are more ISO and post-up heavy, players trying to create their own shots. Um, Some other examples, let me pull up some other examples of shot creators just to give you an idea. So like Jason Tatum is one, Kevin Durant, James Harden, Luka Doncic, uh, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Devin Booker, Dame Lillard, CJ McCollum. They, I mean, their body size may be a little bit different, but these are players trying to create their own shot. You may defend the, the guard ones more with a point of attack defender. You may defend the more wing ones with a wing stopper, but they're generally offensively trying to do the same sorts of things. With all of these roles, these are labels. We're bucketing players together, but it's all on a spectrum. You might have the most pure of uh, movement shooters who's not doing anything else. You might have guys who do some of that, do a little bit of ball handling, do a, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of putbacks, some cutting. It's it's all on a spectrum. All on a spectrum. So keep that in mind. But when we look at the Lakers, and really why I'm doing this is we want to say, all right, how have guys been used? What's different? What's surprising? What needs to change? We have LeBron as a shot creator. That's expected. That's what he's been. That makes sense. I've got no qualms with that. That That's LeBron doing LeBron. AD as a post score. I, I honestly was thinking we might see AD as a versatile big, but he is a post score. He was a post score in the past, so not super surprising there. I think the usage of him, you know, creating his own offense this year is uh, – you know, his his spot-up usage is a little bit down this season. I think that relates a bit to this. Dennis Schroeder is a slasher, on-ball, get-to-the-rim kind of guy, and we see that. We see the pros with that. We see the cons with that. But that's somebody who wants to operate with a spaced floor, and the Lakers are, at times are able to provide that. We have Montrez Harrell, another post-scorer. He's the other post-scorer on the team, and that makes sense. That's what he's done in the past. He's, you know, you'll have those Lou Williams, Montrez Harrell, great highlight plays in, in with the Clippers, but... He was a post scorer for a lot of his offense. That was his top form of offense with the Clippers, and he's carried that over a bit to the Lakers, and he's still a post scorer this year. Then Kyle Kuzma, who's actually taken a move from movement shooter to athletic finisher. So he's uh, mixed in a little bit more getting to the rim and a little bit less just kind of catching and shooting this year. Um Interesting. I want to dive into him some more with Tom another time and, and talk more about that. But Kuz, as an off-ball guy, is what we want. If he showed up as like a shot creator or slasher, that wouldn't be a great sign. I think him as a movement shooter or as an athletic finisher is a good sign that better suits his skill set. And we've seen him be just so active this year. And I think part of why he shows up as an athletic finisher is the, the cuts he's getting this season because the defense is just packing the paint sending extra help at our post-ups and our isolations, that is opening up opportunities for players to be cutting into the rim and, and get really easy buckets. And we've seen him do that. We've seen him used in off-screen situations as well. We've seen him get some putbacks, which, I mean, all right, so let's be honest with Kuz. So cutting is good. Even when you're a bad cutter, it's usually good offense. Kuz, year after year, this isn't a new thing, year after year, his efficiency on cuts has been really bad. 
This year, he's 9 for 17. That's not good as a cutter. He's scoring 0.86 points per possession cutting. That is that is poor. On putbacks, another area that, like, if you're doing it, it's good. It adds value. It's extra possession. So those that's just free money you're picking up. But when he's doing it, he's been less efficient than 85% of players. He's shooting 8 for 18. Like, that is not good either. He's been a really poor isolation score, which is what we didn't want him doing this year, and he hasn't done much of. So that's really encouraging. He hasn't been a pick-and-roll ball handler much, only 12 times all season. He has very much been a spot-up, off-screen, and cut guy and, and being really active in transition. So I like Kuz's usage. He's been good at the areas that, like, as a spot-up player, he needs to be good, and he's been good. He's His activity as a cutter and putback guy is good. It adds value. But he's not quite capitalizing the way he could on those looks. Um, so there's a little bit on Kuz. Let's see who else do we have here. So THT, secondary ball handler. That makes sense. I think the big question we had with him was, will he be a stationary shooter? Which is what I thought his role might be with this team, given what, what skill sets the team has. Or will he be a secondary ball handler, primary ball handler, slasher? And so we've seen him slot into that secondary ball handler role. And it honestly, it fits more than I was anticipating it would fit. He is within the flow of the offense, still doing a good job as a pick and roll scorer in transition. He's kicked butt 15 for 19 shooting. He's been not good as an ISO guy shooting two for nine, uh, spotting up. See that, that this is the, the issue with THC. This is where having him on the court can hurt you is when he is playing with like a Schroeder and LeBron and he's not able to have the ball in his hands doing what he's good at. He needs to be a stationary shooter. So his role isn't stationary shooter, but within specific lineups, that role can change. Overall, secondary ball handler, but within specific lineups, he's being used as a spot-up guy, and he's been less efficient than 93% of players this season spotting up. He's scoring less than two, uh, he's scoring two-thirds of a point per possession, 0.666 repeating. That is not good. There's, like, in, And we're seeing, we saw Denver sag off of him in a way the... Celtics did not. The Celtics, they run their own scheme. They have different help principles. They let the Lakers clear out and like didn't try to counter that. But Denver and a lot of other teams, especially with Caruso and THT, if these guys are out there, they're not going to trust that shooting and they're going to make it make life more difficult for the Lakers, which just means you have to counter it the right ways, which we've seen LA show some signs of life for. But that is some context for THT. His, his role changes based on which lineup he's in, and he's been better at one role than the other, and I'm happy to see he's been a secondary ball handler overall, which speaks to the fact that he's been a little bit more optimized than not. KCP, movement shooter, makes sense. Marcus Saul and Markeith Morris, stretch bigs, that makes sense. Uh, same for Gasol's last year. For Morris, he was a versatile big last year, but that was because he didn't spend the whole year with the Lakers. When he was with the Lakers, he was a stretch big. So similar usage of Keefe this year just hasn't hit the shots all that well. Caruso has been a stationary shooter. This is a change for him. He's moved from being a secondary ball handler to a stationary shooter, which is interesting to me. So we're having him do less guardy sorts of things, which he's been worse at. When when the Lakers are out there running Caruso ball screens, it's not generally good offense. The results show that. Um, he can make some of the simple reads. As a ball screen passer, he'll often get good looks, but as a scorer, he's not doing all that well. And overall, we don't use him too much in that, and that's probably a good thing. But he's effective in transition. He's effective as a spot-up guy. And when he's spotting up, he's not relocating a ton. He's not moving into his shots. He's kind of standing still, and that's okay. That just means that he's a little bit more limited in the ceiling he can have offensively and the types of shots he can 
attempt to take. So that's something to be aware of with uh, Alex Caruso. With Wes Matthews, we've seen him as a movement shooter, which isn't anything new for him. That's that's good to see. And then we start getting into the guys who haven't played all that much. Quinn Cook, secondary ball handler. That makes sense. McKinney, athletic finisher. That makes sense. Uh, Costas, Costas is a slasher, which probably wouldn't continue if he had a larger sample size. Uh, Kaycock, roll and cut big. That fits what he's good at. And then Dudley as a stationary shooter. That fits where he is in his career. So that's a look at how the Lakers have decided to be using players. For the most part, like, it, I wouldn't look at any of these guys and be like, oh, man, like, you're using this player wrong. You're you're losing. There's so much opportunity cost between what you're asking him to do and what he's best at doing. And this is a high-level view. This isn't talking about specific set plays. This isn't talking about specific lineups. So there are my, my overall thoughts about, on which guys are better optimized than others is a little bit different from this. But at a high level, they're being asked to do the right jobs. So that's that's a good uh, sign quarter through the season. We're not at the point where it's like, all right, man, Frank Vogel needs to figure out how the heck to use Dennis Schroeder. Like these guys are at least doing the right types of things. You can improve the granular details, but they're doing the right general things. Now, talking about the rotation, this is a situation we've seen develop pretty quickly, and it appears as though Wes Matthews and Markeith Morris are both on the outs of the rotation. When asked about this, Frank Vogel indicated that this was not permanent, which is the right answer. If he were to say, yeah, those guys are done, that is the quickest way to make those two players disengaged and not be ready to play for the playoffs if you did need need them to play in the playoffs. My guess is they're not done. I think the Lakers may have figured out what this nine-man rotation could look like, what shortening a rotation for the playoffs could appear to be. But you need those two guys engaged. You need them working hard, staying ready. The fact that there isn't much practice time this season makes playing in these games even more important. So if if those two guys aren't playing, it's going to be really tough for them to be playoff ready. So it may not make the team best as they're still really honestly they're working through how to put the right lineups out there how to use guys the right ways i think key for the most part just needs to hit, knock down some threes like he's he's getting the right looks Wes offensively i think has been fine uh he I, from a usage standpoint i think the results haven't quite been there yet but some of that is lineup some of that is variance give him some more time i feel okay about what he's been doing We haven't seen him as much in his ball handler kind of capabilities that we talked about preseason. I I just, I think there are ways to tap into more of what he can bring offensively that are just small things to make him a little bit better. And then he just needs to perform defensively. Wes hasn't been used perfectly. And this is a continuation upon how we saw Milwaukee use him as a chaser, which he is not good at. We covered that at length preseason. We talked through, Hey, if used the right way, he's going to look much better than he did in Milwaukee. And in Milwaukee, he was still had a pretty good impact. This year, that impact hasn't been there. And part of that is the, the, the scheme for the Lakers and the fact that he doesn't have as much coverage the way he did in Milwaukee, given the scheme they ran for the role he was in. He's been a little bit left out there on an island at times in a job that he's not good at. And that is why in specific games, he looks worse than he does in others. So... That the, the Lakers still need to figure that out, but Wes as a wing stopper, Wes as a guy that you can play in a Clippers series, is somebody you want to have at least ready. Maybe he's not the answer, but he's a guy that you would throw at uh, Paul George or Kawhi Leonard. 
one of several. You want to have you want to have options. And the way I may look at handling these two guys moving forward is look for spurts of games where they might get real minutes. Maybe it comes a week at a time, or maybe it's a rest thing. Maybe Wes he goes from zero minutes to 25, 30 minutes when Kuzma's out or KCP's out, whether it be injury or rest. Maybe Keith is in whenever LeBron or AD is sit resting a game. Maybe schedule some of these out, you know, internally. Don't don't make those public. You might get fined for that, but maybe schedule out some rest days ahead of time and have Keith know, hey, on Thursday, you, like it's go time for you. We're going to need you playing big minutes. You need to stay ready. That is a way to keep him motivated instead of the, well, yeah, we, we don't know. It might happen, might not happen. At the same time, you want these guys at the bottom of the rotation pushing each other. You want them playing hard. THT is kind of in now. Those two guys are out. If you just said, all right, that's it. We're, we're done. This is how we're going to like sim towards the end of the season. You're not going to have those guys continue to improve. You need them to push each other. You want this being like uh, like in my fantasy football league I was commissioner of. It wasn't just, you know, the top four teams make the playoffs. It was the top four teams make uh, – what was it? Top six teams make the playoffs. The top two teams get a bye. So if you're in the 3-4 range, you're not just content. You want to keep pushing. If you're in the 1-2 range, you want to stay up. The, the five and six teams – or the six and seven teams are trying to make the playoffs, so they're motivated. And then th- uh, six through 12 were in the consolation bracket, but – the, the loser of that gets punished. There are Sacco. They <laughs> were going to Waffle House. He's going to stay in a Waffle House for 24 hours or lo- uh, get one hour off his sentence for every Waffle Eats. So you don't want to be last. And even if you're not in the playoffs, that seventh and eighth spot, those have an automatic buy away from the loser bracket, essentially. Um, and then among the bottom teams, seating matters. So just finding little incentive systems at all points of our standings in the league was a way to keep people engaged and motivated, even if they knew they couldn't win the title or they knew they wouldn't make the playoffs. This is what just, I hope you're understanding what I'm going for here with the Lakers. The the top guys, some of the guys know they're safe. Some of the guys could be told they're safe or the Lakers can kind of keep this as an open thing. We're going to adjust as players are playing and that's going to keep THT continuing to improve. That's going to keep, the, the other guys, Caruso, KCP, Gasol, like it's going to keep everybody pushing to to keep getting better. And as Wes and Keith, if they believe they have a shot and they're trying hard, they're going to push the guys ahead of them to, to keep staying in shape, keep playing well. And if not, if somebody gets disengaged, starts having a bad stretch, you can change the rotation. So I think that's the general approach. Keep guys engaged. You, you, they have to believe they have a chance. And I, I mean, you best believe that those two guys are going to be key skill sets once we get to the playoffs. We've already seen how Markeith Morris inserted into a lineup with LeBron and AD as a floor spacer and defensively as a versatile player in ball screens and being switchable can be really, really important. If he just starts knocking down threes a little bit, and again, variance, small samples. If he starts knocking threes down, he's looking fine. With Wes, he's someone you want to have as an option to use in the right series, in the right matchups, for the right assignments, and then he can look much better than he has so far this season. But big picture, if we look at how the team has performed so far this season, and we look at the impact of players using our LeBron metric at B-Ball Index, uh, we see Wes Matthews and Markeith Morris being among the the lowest impact guys in the rotation. Those two and Kuz have been the lowest impact guys still in the rotation. Now you've cut two of those three guys out, 
And I think Kuz is getting better. He's being used a little bit better. And we're seeing THT continue to improve. LA has suddenly cut out the fat in the rotation in a way. And that doesn't mean these guys should stay out permanently or they will continue playing this poorly or having that kind of impact. But I understand why the team is playing a bit better from, you know, a rhythm standpoint, a minutes per game standpoint, all that, all, all of the anecdotal things that are true, are real. But just from a what was working and what wasn't working standpoint, suddenly you've taken out two big pieces of the rotation. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. ...that weren't performing all that well just yet. So don't give up on them. You can use them better in different ways, uh, but you, you, that's a situation to monitor moving forward. And if we talk about them going back into the rotation, I don't I don't know what Vogel wants to do. He's at a nine-minute rotation now. Dude, does he expand it to 10 if one of them starts playing really well? Does he go back to 11? The minutes per game of that situation will change for guys. So that's going to be an ongoing dynamic situation we'll have to monitor, but that's my read on it right now. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. Okay, so another question that, I mean, I'm asking, I see other people asking, is LeBron having an MVP caliber season? And to help answer this question, because we see him, you know, he's playing a career low in minutes per game, but he's shooting good percentages, you know, putting up good, like, per 36 numbers. Let's look at our LeBron impact metric because not just because it's something that I helped create because, you know, I love to plug my own stuff, but this metric has been very, very predictive in terms of picking out the MVPs from past years. We, our database goes from 2009 until now. And let's go through year by year. This is where the top player each year in our LeBron impact metric at B-Ball Index finished in MVP voting. So the first place guy in the LeBron metric in 2009-2010, first place in MVP voting. If we look at the, so that's the per 100 possession stat. If we look at it 2010-2011, uh, 12th. This was the year that Derrick Rose won, and uh, the metric had CP3 or Dwight um, or LeBron as who should have been in that running. But So we had first place, a 12th place, and then it goes first place, first place, first place, second place. First place, second place, first place, first place, first place. This metric has been really, really good at picking who wins MVP other than that Derrick Rose crazy year 
and the two second places that it got, one of them was the year that Russell Westbrook won. And in our stat, Russ was second in LeBron. But if we look at the aggregate using minutes uh, version of it, so not per 100 possessions, but total impact, Russ was first and Steph Curry was second. So it was, I mean, it, it's, it was so close. Uh, same thing with 2014, 2015. It's just so close. And in that Russ year, by the per 100 possessions, we had the wrong guy. But looking at total impact, we had the right guy. And we just, I mean, it, it was a very, very close miss. So this stat has picked the right MVP one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight years. Two of them were really close. And then there was the Derek Rose crazy year that I don't think we're going to see this year. Right now, LeBron is seventh in this LeBron metric. That's the per 100 possession impact. LeBron is seventh. That is not a, if he plays more minutes, it'll suddenly go up. This is just per 100 possessions, uh, adjusting for minutes. He has had the seventh highest impact so far. It's very good. It's really, really good. But it's not where it needs to be if he is to win MVP. Now, if we shift to looking at our wins added metric, which is the same stat, but looking at total aggregate impact. And I think, especially this year, there's something to be said about longevity, not just in LeBron's you know career overall, and we've seen how crazy, resilient, and and strong he's been in our metric, and he's going to shatter the record this year for the highest impact of his, at his age in a, in a career, but just playing consistently. And like COVID throws a weird wrench in things, but with the weird practice time and with injuries, like playing and having a consistent impact overall matters. And right now, even though LeBron is seventh in the per hundred possession version of LeBron, in our wins added metric, he is second place. Now, if we, you know, do a little uh, surveying of the land, let me let me pull up the database and we look at which players this year we do think have a, a reasonable shot, at least right now. And this could change. Somebody can play, start playing much better or start playing much worse. Um, looking at what has happened so far this season. Joel Embiid is first, Nikola Jokic is second, and from a wins added standpoint, it's Jokic first, LeBron second. So if you're if you're trying to look at some front runners, that's what it looks like. AD's close, he's fifth, Lucas sixth, Kawhi's up there, Hell Gobert's up there, Miles Turner's having a, a crazy defensive season. Giannis is doing well, but we've seen him take a step back in these metrics as he's still adjusting to the new offensive scheme for Milwaukee, but. That's what it looks like right now. So is LeBron having an MVP season? Maybe. He's in the running. It's not a lock. It's too early for that, obviously. He's not where he needs to be to win it right now, but he's in a good enough position that he can certainly overcome those leaders and be where he needs to be. And even if his per 100 possession impact isn't quite there, you can point to the aggregate impact as long as he continues playing. Um, in the fact that like his minutes is a career low minutes per game, yet his uh, the the minutes version of the stat makes him look even better. I think speaks to how much he's played and how much he just hasn't had to rest and take games off. So that is my answer to that question. There are a bunch of different ways you can look at this, looking at it from a like, oh, if you take this player off this team, they they're the worst team in the league, or you add him, they're the best. That is not a good way to use lineup data. That is taking uh, specific lineups and comparing them to entire teams. That is not a valid mathematical way to do this. You're probably going to see people do that a lot. Uh, you're probably going to see a bunch of different different crazy, you know, creative data arguments. But from a metric standpoint that has had a very, very good track record 
picking the MVP. LeBron isn't quite there, but he has a chance. The next question that I think is an interesting one, and I've seen some different takes on, is what's up with AD? Why is he playing so poorly? Is a, is a question I see a lot. Is he not getting enough touches? Are his, his minutes need to be higher? Is it like, what's the issue? Is it Rajon Rondo's not there? So he's where, like, what's going on? Do our team is not feeding him enough? What, what's the deal? And I think there are a couple of things worth noting here. Let's start by saying, so let's look at his efficiency and then let's look at his usage and see what's changed. So from last season to this season, from an efficiency standpoint, his post-up scoring is at a it's it's a high it's a career high for AD. He is as a post scorer, he is like close to Embiid. He's ahead of Jokic. He's a premier elite post scorer this year. And honestly, it's in the past he's been a high volume, good but not great efficiency post scorer. We've seen a monster version of AD in the post this year in a way that we just haven't seen before. And is like wildly like not considered when when talking about him. He's playing really really well from the post. From a scoring standpoint, his uh, role man efficiency is not bad. Two key areas, I think, are, are dragging his efficiency down. So he's getting to the free throw line about half as often when he's rolling, which really cuts into his free throw volume. And his free throws, his, his percentage itself is down about 15%, which I think will improve and he'll go back up. And I mentioned before that Darko metric that uh, the, the approaches look at a player's history compared to all other players in the database and see, you know, if they're doing, if they're shooting this free throw percentage for this period of time, you know, when can we trust it? When should we reset our expectations? It still thinks AD is a very good free throw shooter. So I'm not too concerned there. I think over time it'll improve. But his free throw volume per game is down 30%. And the role man piece of it is a big piece of this. He is able to attack closeouts less often on pops this year. So him popping is now mostly catching and shooting. And this is all that picking and sitting. Like we've talked about on the pod and I've we've highlighted on the streams and we've I've put videos out about instead of screening and then taking a step or two back to the three-point line, he is setting screens inside the three-point line and just kind of hanging out. And a key difference here is playing with Schroeder, he's setting deeper ball screens than he has in the past, especially for like LeBron, even with Rondo, they were setting higher ball screens because of that. His footwork just needs to tweak a little bit. And we've seen him be better at this for times in the season. And then at other points in time, not as good, but when he's just picking and then sitting there, he's not getting true pops. A lot of times it turns into like an isolation. Uh, and when he is catching and shooting, instead of taking threes, 44% of his catch and shoot pops are long twos which is like when we talk about all oh, the game is changing and players are shooting more threes, it's not the the Dames, the Hardens, the LeBrons. It's not those guys that are changing drastically how they're taking threes. They're, though, that group of players, the self-created ones, the unassisted threes, that's been about the same over time. That's not a new thing. It's the catch and shoot long twos that have gone away and picking and popping has been the largest spot there that and then guys spotting up like a step inside the three-point line instead of just spotting up and spacing the floor at the three-point line that's the big difference so ad has regressed in this respect uh he shot 27 percent of his catch and shoot pops were twos last season it's up to 44 percent this year his rate of getting to the rim on pops has been cut in half this year and 
this makes sense. It's making life more difficult for Schroeder and other ball handlers because his man can defend the pop while defending the ball handler kind of at the same time. If, if you are a Schroeder and trying to drive and you get cut off and you kick it out, instead of suddenly having a wide open three, as we've seen at times this season as and as we saw last year, now the defender has to take like a step and a half and he's able to contest those shots. And because that player is closer, that is a much less wild, much more in control closeout, which means AD has less space. He has less momentum. He has a less technically unsound defender to attack if he wants to attack him off the dribble. And that's just really hurting his ability to get to the rim, score at the rim, score efficiently. A lot of these pick and rolls turn into just like isolations. And that's not what the goal should be. You should be looking to pick and pop and get an open three or attack a wild closeout and get all the way to the rim. He's being stuck in that middle area. And that's just not good. And it's cutting down on his free throws. The other area that AD has really struggled this year is his spot up efficiency. His cut uh, efficiency is good. His roll man efficiency has been okay. His spot up efficiency is way, way down. In terms of catching and shooting, he's shot 7 for 28 catching and shooting this year so while just kind of spacing the floor. 27 of those 28 shots are three, so he's shooting 7 for 27 on three is spotting up. That's 26%. That is a guy you can help off of. Um, attacking closeouts uh, into pull-ups, he's 2 for 11. Attacking the rim, he's 1 for 6. He's made one shot this entire season set where he's spotting up, standing at the three-point line, gets a kick out, attacks a closeout, gets all the way to the rim. He's hit one shot. These are tiny samples. These are things he's been better at in the past, especially the, the scoring at the rim piece. Maybe he's not going to be an elite pull-up mid-range kind of guy. He showed off some playoff uh, you know, prowess there with hitting a lot of those shots. But just like Jamal Murray last playoffs, who got really hot for a bit, sometimes that's not who you truly are. That's just... Uh, picking a small stretch of games and you looked really good for that stretch of games like pick a 20 game stretch of a lot of players years this year and they might have crazy numbers that just tend to happen over the course of a season but overall big picture it's just a little blip but in the playoffs the blip is the season so that's we, we don't want to be led astray there we don't want to alter the way we play based on something that might not be true or repetitive but I do think these will improve. I think his catching and shooting will improve. I think his scoring at the rim will improve. The spacing is there enough that, like, I, I think this is all very doable. I think there are small tweaks the Lakers can make. I think he can move the ball a bit better. Like, either catch and shoot, catch and attack the closeout, but don't catch, wait for the guy to close out, and then try to, like, dribble into an ISO and then pull up. On average, I looked at his catch and shoot looks, um, or his spot-ups in general, AD has gotten the ball with nine seconds left on the shot clock. So it's not like he's being the pass the ball really early in the clock and asked to do something. He's getting the ball in a shot or pass read and turning those nine seconds into like two seconds before he finally takes the shot. You need to have quicker decisions. That's the one and a half, what is it, half second offense that the Suns and Monty Williams talk about. Make a decision when you get the ball and then go for it. If, if you create the advantage, kick it out to somebody, and then they don't continue to push it, the defense recovers and whatever that initial advantage was that you created goes away. So free throws in the pops, which we know why, and then spotting up, that's where AD has been less effective this year. He also has two and a half scoring possessions fewer per game this year. And you might be saying, well, he's playing lower minutes. Yes, even proportionally, 
that's a disproportionate drop in scoring possessions relative to the minutes per game he's playing. And we can talk about, oh, his teammates aren't setting him up. And at times, Schroeder will have his head down in ball screens and be in driving mode, have the blinders on, and not see AD popping. Um, and, and we've seen that. But that's not all the time. And AD's spot-up chances from a volume standpoint, they've been the same at a high level. His dump-offs have been the same. His rolls, his pops, and the slips have been the same. It's not that he's not being fed. This isn't a, oh, well, he has score first teammates instead of pass, for team, pass first teammates. He's just not getting the ball enough. He's getting the same chances. There are two areas, however, where his opportunities have dipped. One of them is in transition, and it's down just a couple percentage points. As a team, the Lakers have moved down a substantial amount. So this isn't surprising. He's kind of moved down as the team has moved down. The fact that LA is playing slower is actually the, a bit surprising Surprising, given the additions and subtractions from last year's team. And we, we looked at this preseason. We looked at the pace impact estimate upgrades that the Lakers made in a number of areas. It was Schroeder and Ferrando, Trezin for like JaVale, uh, Wes in for Danny Green. These are all players that tended to make their teams play faster last year, but put them all together and the Lakers haven't quite been able to harness that yet. Though... When they have, it's looked crazy good. So LA just needs to be more purposeful, make it a point of emphasis, get those outlet passes, the ball moves faster than people, be leaking out, do all the things we saw in that second half against Denver more consistently, and this becomes a much more effective offense. But the transition efficiency has been mediocre. The efficiency has also been mediocre. Um, I'm sorry, the, the, the usage, the frequency and efficiency have both been mediocre. I think I misspoke there. So that's one area. Transition's down. The other area where AD's usage is down is actually in post-ups. And, I mean, th there's no, like, super hard conundrum here. We know why. Come on. Like, if you've listened to this podcast, you understand why AD's post-ups have been fewer than in the past. And it's, like, one less per game, one and a half less per game. It's not, like, a crazy, crazy drop. But it is down. It is down, and that is because AD is having to pass out against extra help which LA sees almost every game and the Lakers are struggling to counter. So instead of AD shooting against two guys, which he's still doing quite a bit, he's getting the ball in the post, passing it out, but the Lakers aren't creating advantages and that's resulting in just fewer scoring possessions for AD and, you know, some, some, some lower scoring from him. So from the, if the answer, the question is what's up with AD, it's not that he's not having the table set for him. It's not that he's been like a bad post player, a bad role man or anything. It's the picking and sitting is impacting his pops. His spot-up efficiency is a little, we're seeing a little bit of variance that'll probably go up. The transition of the team has gone down and that's gone down for him. And then his post-ups are down because the team isn't countering well enough or frequently enough to give him more of an opportunity to attack. And then when he does try to force it, it's often harder shots. And, and that's, that's a weakness of LA's. This is something that the team has struggled with since last regular season, since last playoffs, round after round after round. It may not be the same flavor every time, but they're giving you the same, you know, we're going to send extra help in the post. There are very few teams that are dumb enough to just say, all right, well, if you clear out, I mean, I guess we have to let you clear out. The Celtics did that, but that was, that was dumb. Most teams, Denver didn't do this. Other teams didn't do this. We're seeing AD, AD had what? I think he had one post up and one ISO last night. That's because Denver sent help. He got the ball in the post. And then it's like, oh, well, he's not being aggressive enough. Well, do you want him going at two dudes? Do you want him going at a person and a half? No, there are 
basketball ways to beat what the defense is giving you and trying to take away. And the Lakers haven't played that game well enough. And it has hurt them. It'll continue to hurt them. And if this team loses, if this team does not win the title, this will be a key piece of it. Assuming health, uh, no, like LeBron AD, they're healthy. Other guys are healthy. If the team doesn't win, this will be a core piece of it that people are going to talk about. And it's not in the it's not in the spotlight right now. It's being excused as oh they're not playing hard or he doesn't want to you know he's he's just letting other guys play. This is a tactical X's and O's thing that the team has been weak at, and and they're showing some signs of life. We've seen them counter the help on the high side a little bit better when when the perimeter players what we'd call digging in where they're leaving their man to go you know swat at the ball from the perimeter if you're posting up so you've got you're posting up you've got a guy on your back and you've got a guy from in front of you trying to swat at the ball that is one way of of attacking the lakers post ups and the lakers have figured out the right ways to attack that they just need to be more consistent it's cutting that player it's relocating that player though where the defense isn't it take the shot they're letting you take now when help is coming from the baseline and you know, AD or LeBron or Harold, they turn or Gasol, they turn, and then suddenly somebody's there, so they have to settle for a fall away mid range jumper. That is hurtful as well. And we have not seen the team counter well against this as recently as a week ago. This past week, especially against Atlanta, who is a team that helped in that specific way, we saw the Lakers time after time, I think five, six times that whole game, they used the right counters. They were getting those pin in flare screens where the, the, the defense, they're sending an extra player from the weak side to the strong side. So weak side, you have a player at the corner, a player at the wing, and a player at the opposite block in that dunker spot who we can't throw lobs to anymore. This isn't JaVale. It's not Dwight. That is a easy counter that the Lakers no longer have. But instead, what they're doing is there's one player guarding both the opposite corner and that dunker spot. And if you don't move, you don't screen, and that skip pass happens, they can recover to the corner just fine. What the Lakers are doing now is having that big man in the dunker spot instead of Marcus all standing there and not being a lob threat. He is sealing that player off. He is setting a screen so that when the skip pass happens, that player cannot recover to the corner. And then that's either a catch and shoot or if the player, the defender at the wing rotates down, it's a, a catch, pass, and shoot. As long as it's quick, as long as it's purpose, purposeful, it's generating high quality shots. They don't always go in. Open corner threes don't always go in, but I'm going to take high volumes of open, open corner threes all day over LeBron or AD forcing up tough shots against multiple defenders. <clears throat> and this is this is not an AD issue. I mean, it impacts him, but it's a Laker issue. And what I did to prepare for this podcast was I tracked every post-up that the Lakers had, every scoring possession that they had against Denver, Atlanta, and Boston. AD was out for Detroit, so I didn't go that far. We, we could expand the sample. We're going to see similar things. I didn't count post seals, so like if the Lakers lobbed the ball into AD, who was like sealed his man already, and he just caught it and quickly dunked, that that didn't really count. I was looking at true post ups where the defense had a chance to try to send some help, and I categorized these in two ways: either the Lakers countered the help or they didn't counter the help. There were 16 possessions over three games, about five a game, where the Lakers saw extra help and they countered it. They were getting open cuts to the rim. They were getting open weak side corner threes from pin-ins. It was beautiful. They scored 21 points on 16 possessions, 1.31 points per possession. They could have scored more if they hit some open threes at a higher rate. They, that number is 
generous to the defense because that 1.3 could be much higher if the Lakers just converted a bit better. So that work, it works when the Lakers are countering the help, whether it's high side or weak side, high side baseline, they're getting good shots and they're knocking them down or or at least getting good opportunities for the right players. 1.31 points per possession on 16 chances. Over those three games, there were 25 times extra help came and the Lakers didn't bother to try to counter. There were a lot of fadeaway post jumpers from from deeper mid-range, forcing shots up against extra help. In 25 possessions, the Lakers scored 15 points. That's 0.6 points per possession. That's a 60 offensive rating. That is the (laughs) worst offense the, the league has ever seen. That is your that's your boy AD. That's your guy LeBron. That's your MVP candidates, Le, LeBron and AD. Your uh, AD having a career year in the post. Big piece of this. Big piece of those 25 possessions. 0.6 points per possession. 25 where we didn't counter, 16 that we did counter. And the efficiency was more than twice as efficient when countering that extra help. But we only countered 39% of the time. 25 possessions versus 16. Extra help may have different flavors, but by now LA has seen it all. They've seen it almost every game and they need to have counters ready and execute them. If for the next quarter of the season, this is the only thing the Lakers improve, it will really help their title odds in my perspective. If we go into the playoffs not fixing this, I am legitimately concerned. I still think the team has a great shot at the title, but if there is a path to beating the Lakers, this is step one. But again, despite all this, 80's having a career year in the post. When we're doing the right things, he's getting really good 1v1 looks and he's kicking butt. This this is the same as we saw in the playoffs. I did the same tracking in the playoffs. I think it was against Denver. It might have been against, gosh, I think it was against Denver. I did it against Houston as well. I mean, I think I tracked this every round. It, it Once we got to the Denver series and on, it was every round where we're, we're looking at stuff. Houston, Denver, and, and Miami. And the Portland series, I was, I think I still tracked it. Yeah, you'll have to go look at the, the articles. But this is something I was looking at. It was a consistent theme. It was a consistent issue. But consistently, when the Lakers made the right tactical moves, simple stuff, nothing hard. This isn't chess. This isn't football X's and O's. There's no cover six that looks like a cover one. That Like, it's not hard. It's not difficult. It's a focus thing. It's a game planning thing. The fact that the Lakers aren't practicing makes it harder to implement these counters. But they have a couple simple ones. They just need to use them more in the same games. There might be 10 times they, they get extra. So what was it? 25, 16, so 41 extra helps in three games. 41 divided by three is about 14 times a game. They had a post up against extra help. And of those 14 times per game, only about five of them, they actually did the right thing and, and were able to generate high quality look. Over the remaining like nine or 10 a game, they were taking tough shots. Even with good players, those are tough shots and they weren't effective and they haven't been effective and they won't be effective. We've seen these same issues in isolation as well, which isn't part of this tracking. I'm talking about perimeter isolation. This was post-isolation. I have not tracked those results this season, but in the playoffs, I did that same thing and, and the results were similar. So it's 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 a game planning thing. That is a big piece that's going to make LeBron and AD look like MVP caliber guys or make them look like bums who aren't interested in playing or, or getting shut down by Jeremy Grant or whoever it is. So that is one key weakness. If Ellie loses the title, that is step one. Step two is attacking the big man depth of this team. I think 
so uh, think about this. So Keith's out of the rotation. The Lakers have actually fared pretty well with without him as a backup power forward. They have Mark, they have Trez, who, for whatever reason, cannot play on the floor at the same time. But they make up the center minutes. And then you have AD out there. You've got like LeBron playing some big. You've got Kuz who can who can play up a bit. That is your big man rotation. If one of those guys get, gets hurt, and I understand that two of those guys are, are star players. If they get hurt, team's in big trouble. But if Marcus Saul goes down, or if Montrezl Harrell goes down, for as much as people can can whine and complain about specific components of their game and what they wish they could be, those guys are effective in at what they're being asked to do, and the Lakers are doing a good job optimizing them offensively and defensively. There are opportunities to improve. Trez, we've talked about his his role isn't where he's most optimized, but within everything that's happening, knowing AD is not going to play center in the regular season all that much, this is fine. We're going to get to the playoffs. We're going to be able to do it a little bit better, but they're playing fine. If one of them goes down, that's a huge issue. Huge issue. Rebounding, post-defense, all those things. You're in trouble. We've floated the idea of getting a buyout candidate. I did some research. Here are some of the names I found. Andre Drummond. I actually, I saw that name and then I saw almost certainly isn't getting bought out. So we're not going to consider him. We have JaVale McGee, you know, roll and cut big shot blocker. I'd be, I mean, I'd be interested in looking at him. He's a poor post defender, but we've seen if, if there's a single thing, here's what I want you to take away from this podcast. If we've learned anything over the past 12 months, it's that you can defend well against elite isolation players on both the perimeter and the post with good team defense. And it takes smart offensive X's and O's to counter that. Executed well, players making the right reads, turning scores into passers, turning off-ball guys into finishers. All of those things need to happen to beat those simple that simple extra help you bring. So if the Lakers are stuck with Montrose Harrell as a post defender, you can do well. Nikola Jokic didn't score a point against him in the post that past, past game. He also didn't see a single 1v1 possession against Trezor in that last game. He had, oh my goodness, let me pull up my tweet thread. He had, I think, nine post-ups in the game. And among those nine, when he was single-covered, and I'm stalling for time a little bit. Okay, when he was single-covered, he had four points and three possessions. 1.33 points per possession. Very good offense. When LA brought help from the high side is, is how we did it, he had three points and six possessions. 0.5 points per possession. Killed him. He couldn't do anything. This was This is the same defender that could not stay on the court or the Clippers, you know, made look like he couldn't stay on the court last playoffs doing a fine job, doing what he's good at and getting extra help from teammates. And the Lakers played really good post defense, even with Trez out there. And and it's fine. You don't need, I, I, my urgency for signing a big man backup post defender has gone down a bit. Now that we've seen that Frank Vogel is willing and capable of playing this extra help in the post game. When it was individual 1v1 post-defense, like in that Philly game, Marcus actually held up pretty well, and he held up decently against Denver too. But when it was a 1v1 game, it became Gasol, or if Gasol's not out there, you're in a little bit of trouble. And AD can do well. He can do well against Jokic more so than against Embiid, but you don't want to have to make him play that anchor big role that he's not best at if, if you don't need to. <coughs> so... And, and I do think it's a possibility. I think we're going to see it a bit in the playoffs. It's going to happen. But thinking again, big picture, you can defend miss in mismatches. And we saw this last playoffs, attacking Denver, attacking Houston, attacking Portland. There are plenty of poor perimeter defenders that we got LeBron isolations against where he wasn't efficient because the defense brought extra help and the Lakers didn't counter. We can do that too. We can do that. 
we can make everyone else's life difficult with that extra help. So when looking through these bio guys, post defense isn't isn't a, a premier thing for me as much. So we got McGee. We have Bismack Biombo, who is a decent post defender. He's okay on defense. His offense has just been so bad this year on on like really easy shots, like dump offs, putbacks. Just has not converted. He it doesn't look like he'd be a positive addition to the team. Same thing with Cody Zeller. I think they're on the same team, I believe, right now. Charlotte, same sorts of things offensively. Zeller though on defense, not a good interior defender. We have Mike Muscala, who Lakers fans remember for trading. Uh, to, uh, getting him in exchange for Evita Zubats, floor spacer, poor interior defender, and, and we've seen how in small stretches of the season, a three-point shot can just go away. It can appear, it can go away, and that can change the way players view or people view a player. Felicio, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, from Chicago. He's on an expiring deal. Another name I've seen, he's just not a good interior defender. He's not a good defender at all. He's not a good offensive player. He's a, he's a fringe NBA player. He's, he's not someone I'd consider. Robin Lopez, he's a pretty good post defender. He's not mobile. He has been like a bench caliber guy. His offense has, in, has been actually a little bit better than his defense this year. He's a very limited, good at specific things. He can be your, if Mark's out, we need someone to play individual post defense. Okay. Where you run into trouble, though, is if it's against Denver— they're going to string out catch edges into isolations. And then suddenly you've got a not mobile big man in Lopez trying to defend Jamal Murray on the perimeter. And that's not going to go all that well. So the, the more I talk about this and think through it, the less urgency I have to get a big man off the buyout market. You still want to get one. If a Reza is available, you go get a Reza. If like Otto Porter Jr. is available, maybe you look at that. But from a big man standpoint, these are some of the options. It's not going to be – you're not going to get a Markeith Morris on this buyout market. The last name, Ed Davis, uh, so I think Jared Vanderbilt's playing over him now. He may be on the outs of the rotation in Minnesota, out of their future, not a good team, so someone that could get bought out. He's a good defender. Two years in a row, he's just been, again, a horrendous finishing guy at the rim, not a f- floor spacer, so that's the concern with him. It's kind of in the the zeller uh, Biombo camp of, might give you something, but uh, not going to be a great you know finisher kind of guy to have out there, but that's what you're looking at. Honestly, looking at these, I'd, I'd be happy to have JaVale back. Um, we know what he can do. We know what he can't do. He'd probably be able to integrate pretty well, especially in a year with, without much practice time. But there there aren't any golden children <laughs> ready to be bought out and saved from a bad team. That teams are just being willing to just let go. Now, if Andre, Andre Drummond is bought out, which I don't think will happen, yeah, go get him. But know that he's limited in specific ways too, but he, he's like, that's like the best of best case scenarios for the type of big man you can get on that buyout market given who we're seeing floated. So I don't have high hopes, but when we talk about big man depth, this was a key concern of mine that given the team's defense of the post approach this year, I feel a little bit better about now. Now, the third thing, if you're going to beat this Lakers is their offensive half court game being stagnant. We've seen the transition offense not quite there this year. 23rd in pace, 13th in transition frequency. And, you know, the difference between those lets us know that they're, they're not getting out in transition much, but when they're not, when they're in the half court, they're extra slow. And then transition in uh, efficiency, 14th. We've seen the team not run all that many sets. Uh, the sets they are running, some of them look good, some of them aren't as good. They've added some good counters, I think, to 
some specific actions they like using. Like that that play that I've complained a lot about where there's a, a pin down into – there's like a staggered screen into a handoff that ends up with a KCP mid-range jumper all the time. That one's not doing so hot. But the counters off of that have been pretty good and gotten good shots. The AD standing in the corner, we're going to set a, cur- a down screen that he's going to curl off of. That is something that worked in the beginning of the year. Defense has figured out the very simple adjustment to stop it, bumping that cutter or sending a little bit of extra help weak side, which the Lakers haven't countered. And it's kind of shut that play down. Other than Philly, who Danny Green just did not, he completely blanked on that play, didn't bother to try to slow AD down or stand in his way or anything. This is, and this is like high school, college defense, just principal stuff, like bump the cutter. He didn't, and, and we got a great bucket off of it, almost won the game because of it. But against other teams, even recently, we've seen them defend it in smarter ways, and that hasn't worked all that well. But the Lakers have built in counters off of it and gotten some good shots. So LA has some plays. They don't run them on high volume. The plays they're running aren't the types of plays that generally get me to like stand up and be super excited about. But they seem to appear to see how teams are defending them and are building in the right counters in a way that like it's it's okay. It's not great. It needs to be better, but it's not like you, you don't just scrap everything and start over. I do think the team needs to run more sets, run better sets. Some of it is just principle baits, principled based stuff. Like when you're running a post up or running when you're running a ball screen, have that off ball motion. And this all plays into the concept we talked about earlier, where the extra help is coming on post ups. You need to counter it in the right way. And if you don't, you're in trouble. All right. So that's another area that if the Lakers don't win the title, that's going to bite them in the butt. I think individual defense against scoring wings is another key concept. Uh, if Wes isn't in the rotation, our wing stopper options are what? LeBron, AD, if we take him out of his role. LeBron, same thing if we take him out of his helper role. Kuzma, and I guess Alex Crusoe if you play him up. Schroeder, THT, KCB, they're not going to fare well against scoring wings. If we, if we play the Clippers, you've got some matchup problems. I had someone ask me if Schroeder may fare better in this role because last season in OKC's three-guard lineup, they, I think one of the Lakers announcers mentioned that he played up. That's not quite true. Looking at his matchup data, so if you were looking at the percentage of time he spent guarding point guard, shooting guard, small forward, power forward, center. Last season, he guarded point guards 38% of the time, shooting guards 37%, then 11% small forwards, 10% power forwards, 5% centers. And I think there's some rounding going on in there. I think that's actually 101%. CP3 and Shea Gildress Alexander both guarded point guards less often. Uh, they were guarding threes through th- fives much more often. Um, THT, or I'm sorry, not THT. Schroeder guarded small fours through centers 26% of his time on defense last year. This year it has been 23%, so even lower. And CP3 and SGA were at 47 and 36% last year compared to 26 for Schroeder, who was guarding point guards more often, even shooting guards less often. So when they ran the three-guard lineup, he was often the smallest guy. So I don't I, I don't know who's watching how many OKC games last year, but that is what it looked like there. And this year, he's been even less versatile, even more skewed towards guarding guards. 54% of his time on point guards, up from 38% last year. 24% shooting guards, 9% small forwards, 8% power forwards, 6% center. So 
<laughs> less time spending spent guarding twos, threes, fours, about the same for fives, and much more time guarding ones. So not the type of guy you feel the most comfortable with switching in those situations. He's he's had some good games, but know where his limits are. Another thing that could get the Lakers in trouble are the fact that THT and Caruso shooting wouldn't get respected. And I know the percentages have been decent and Caruso's is kind of coming back to earth and, you know, our, our perimeter shooting talent grade wasn't quite buying into what he was doing all that much yet because of the volume. This is an area that, you know, you can get hot, you can get cold on small samples, things can happen, but we're seeing defenses not respect them as much. Denver didn't. Austin did. And again, we talked about how their help defense was weird and the Lakers cleared out and they didn't bother to try to help off of anybody, but... NBA defenses are more going to be like Denver than against Boston, especially in the playoffs. And we know this. We've seen this. We went through this for four rounds. Most teams will help off those guys. And if they're hesitating to hit, take open threes like we've seen recently, or they're catching and driving into a pack paint instead of just taking the open three like we've also seen recently, LA's going to be fighting an uphill battle in that respect. So it may not be an issue. They they may learn. They may get better. They we'll, we'll see what happens. But that pairing's offensive rating data is something I want to monitor because if it's not working, that's going to be a concern. And there's there it's vulnerable. I'll say right now it's vulnerable. There are ways to work around. If they are sagging off of that, a lot of it goes back to those concepts we talked about before. But that is something to be keeping a close, close eye on. Now, the last reason I can think of for why the Lakers would be struggling, maybe not win the title, would be the the new defensive scheme, which I think they've made a lot of great progress on. If that defensive scheme is struggling, it's going to be looking like THT and Schroeder continuing to miss rotations, which they've continued to do. They've gotten better. It's not perfect, but they're getting better. Their on-ball defense has been awesome. I'm talking about the off-ball defense. That Watching live, it's it's really hard to notice, even for me. like Unless I'm looking at it, it's hard to tell um and it's just not part of like the way you generally are entertained in an NBA game but on film it's pretty glaring and they can clean that up a bit with this new catch edge scheme rim defense is that was the the thing that you're downgrading with from JaVale and Dwight to Montrez and Gasol and the way you counteract that with the scheme is by stopping ball handlers from getting to the rim or that's the idea at least <coughs> In reality, the Lakers are giving up the fourth most shots at the rim per game of any team. Their their rim defensive field goal percentage is about average, but opponents are shooting a lot of shots at the rim. Teams are getting fewer threes against the Lakers, whether above the break or in the corners, which is a good sign. That's that's a good thing to keep out for watch out for. But the shots at the rim is a little bit concerning, especially given the step down in rim protection that the Lakers have. So that's me trying to nitpick as much as I could to find, you know, if the Lakers don't win, what would that look like? Now, let's talk about for for these last couple of minutes, uh, as, as my voice continues to de- degrade as the time goes on, what LA looks like to win the title. How, are, are, should they be assumed to be the top seed? Should they be assumed to be the title favorite? How much so? I've seen some people put out projections mathematically that say Brooklyn should be the favorite right now. I've seen, I mean, Utah, I think, is in first place right now. The Clippers look legit. They have better coaching and they have better players than they did last year. They're better built for the playoffs. Why would the Lakers be the favorites? Let's start with a couple of things. Let's assume first health. Let's assume that Wes and Keefe are still engaged come playoff time if, if they're 
disengage, that hurts the team. And then another key piece, I don't know if we should assume it or not, but we've seen signs of life when it comes to attacking, paint packing, and extra help against post-ups and isolation. So if they figure that out and they're healthy and they've got the whole roster ready to play, the Lakers are in great shape. Rebounding was a concern, hasn't been an issue. I downplayed it a bit preseason. I said, we'll probably do fine. And and so far, the team has. They've done well enough on the de- defensive boards. And when they are matched up against a team that's going to beat them up a little bit on the boards, LA has countered that. They've exploited that, as we saw against Denver, by abusing teams trying to crash the boards against us by getting out into transition. Outlet passes, leaking out, AD sealing a dude, Montrez sealing a dude all the way at the other end of the court, throw those long touchdown passes. This is something we're seeing a lot of, we need to see way more of, but is a counter to this. So the rebounding's okay, and if we're threatened, challenged by it, we have a, a counter punch. And then let's talk about the defense. The defense has been dominant while still having a lot of room for improvement. We're still missing some rotations, as I touched on, but a lot's looking good. The team is first in defensive rating by a lot. And we have the second best two-point shooting foul percentage drawn, meaning that the Lakers are not fouling players inside the arc, which is mostly at the rim. Last year, we were 12th. So we were about average. This year, even though teams are getting a lot of shots up at the rim, we're not fouling them. So that that is really helpful. It helps keep guys in the game, no foul trouble, and also not giving up free points, essentially. And then also keep in mind, we're doing all this. We're accomplishing all these things. To me, in an overperforming way, not a, on a results standpoint, but just in terms of how well they've they've looked. Um, given the fact that the team is not running the optimal offense, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, optimal defense based on opponent game after game, and even though no one really is right now, teams kind of have a base defense. The Lakers are less versatile game by game than most teams this year. And they are less versatile than they were last season in terms of what defensive game plans they're running out there, especially against ball screens. So we're, we're trying to put screws in a wall with a hammer sometimes, and it's just not optimal, but that's going to continue to improve. We've seen the, the Lakers install their principles. They're getting better at executing those. They're starting to counter the ways teams are attacking this defense. They're more on time with stuff. And it's, it's really encouraging. I'm really pleased with where they are. And the results are ahead of schedule to me. And some of it is, you know, we've been healthy. We haven't had a bunch of COVID going around or guys in the protocol. So that is certainly important and helpful. But LA, from a luck-adjusted standpoint, from a raw standpoint, from a removing garbage time standpoint, this defense is legit. And then for all of its issues, the, the offense is still damn good and getting better. THT's getting better game after game. LeBron's minutes are low. So come playoff time when he's playing more, that's going to be more of an output. Um, keep in mind his his per 100 possession impact, according to that. LeBron metric was seventh best among all players. Um, and let me see, what is it for offense so far? So far for offense, LeBron is 12th in offensive impact per 100 possessions. But I mean, in, in probably in like the second tier. So he's 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 right in the mix of things. As he ramps up, as we know LeBron likes to do, He's so calculated. So, you know, this is the period of the season. I'm going to be exerting this much effort or going this hard. Or, you know, he's he'll get there. So that's a piece of it. 
We've seen the rotation be a little bit better optimized recently. That's been promising. I talked about the signs of life the team showed against the paint packing, against the the help from the baseline side, which had been an issue up until that Atlanta game. It's still an issue, but the the Lakers at least know they're playing the right cards. They just need to recognize it more frequently and play the right cards more often. But the fact that we have the answers and just it's a matter of using those answers on higher volume is really, really encouraging. And we have plenty of time to iron those counters out. And if we do, we've overcome the largest schematic obstacle this team has and had last season. So that's really encouraging. Uh, the post defense we talked about somewhat solved. Even, you know, individually Gasol's good as a team, whether it's Trez or, or someone else as the primary defender, we've seen the good team defense. We haven't seen them go through a chess match of doing something that the offense counters that they need to counter. But in a good good place. The fact that they tried it shows that they recognize the issue and are being proactive about trying to solve it. And then let's let's touch on the versatility of this team. We enter the playoffs with a team that can win fast, they can win slow. This is a defense that, and I talked about this in my video, this defensive scheme translates better to the playoffs way more than last year's. It translates better to the playoffs than I think any team out there right now. This is a defensive scheme with the same personnel that you can just run in the playoffs and be doing the same things and it'll be more refined and you're going to fine tune it to the opponent you're playing. But instead of running drop coverage all year and then having to ditch it for the playoffs because you're playing Luca and you're playing Murray and you're playing all these guards that in Dame that you can't drop against, suddenly you, you don't need to worry about ditching everything that you've been working on all year and playing a different game essentially. So that's helpful. We know Vogel and his staff will make the right defensive adjustments in a timely manner. That's helpful. Our approach defensively is super versatile. We have the personnel to play really any on and off ball screen coverages. We have the types of individual defenders to defend well in all different areas, defending up, defending down, defending well in ISO. I think Caruso, LeBron, and AD are the three kind of queens of the chessboard that you have as a guard, wing, and big. You know, within reason, you know, Caruso's not going to be your anchor big, but Caruso can defend bigger than he is. He can defend the point of attack. He can chase around screens. He can play a little bit of wing stopper. LeBron can play wing stopper. He's the best as a helper. He can play a little bit of help defense as like a perimeter big. He can guard on the perimeter a little bit. And then there's AD who can basically do anything. So all of those guys are a huge, huge asset to this team's defense and allow you to play very versatilely. And the fact that you have a wing stopper off the bench with Wes, who's not even in the rotation right now, or a guy like Keith that you can suddenly throw in and then be way more versatile and switchy are just, you know, little tricks in your bag that you don't even have to pull out right now that are good to have available. That's why it's important to keep those guys engaged. Offensively, this year's team is different from last year's team in that with Harrell, Schroeder, AD, LeBron, God, uh, Kuz, we'll say KTP, these are guys that in different ways, not all in the same way, but in different ways, we can attack weak defenders at the point of attack, at the rim, as chasers, wing stoppers, in screen situations. We're capable to attack weaknesses in a defense in a playoff environment far better than last season's team was, where we had a couple really good punches, but, but that was it. And then the last thing I want to touch on, I know this has gone a bit long, shortening rotation. So I've been thinking about this. As rotations shorten in the playoffs, certain teams will be better impacted than others. It really comes down to how good your bench is. Brooklyn, 
Milwaukee, and the Clippers, I think, are three teams that are title contenders and have some weaker benches. And compared to the Lakers, we, we, we talk about, you know, your three through 11 guys. Those are teams with the weaker three through the 11s, but now it becomes one through nine or one through eight instead of one through 10 or one through 11. And by them cutting out guys that weren't all that positive as contributors, they're not negatively impacted by that. The Lakers have a strong bench. So you don't really, like you're not in better shape by having to cut those guys out per se. But the fact that the bench is strong and we've seen it be good even shortening it and then you have guys like Keefe or Wes as options that you can throw out there for the right matchups and right assignments and stuff, that is really helpful. Wes hasn't been put in the best positions to succeed this year, but come playoff time, if we see the Clippers and need another wing stopper guy that's out there, again, he's not going to be the guy, but he can be a guy and he can be a positive dude that's defended some of these players before with success. You spot a floor spacer on the other end and, and just fill that role just fine. So the offensive and defensive versatility is a key for this team. Last year it was defensive versatility. This year it is has expanded on both ends in different ways, and I'm really pleased with what we're seeing. Overall, through this quarter of the season, we're in great shape. The team's doing well. The team's performing in the standings. They're doing well. They could do better. Uh, winning some key games. We're seeing growth. We're seeing the team already using players the right ways and figure out the right counters to how defenses are playing them and how offenses are attacking them. So overall, big thumbs up from me. And I would continue to have the Lakers as my title favorite moving forward this year. So I know this has gone a little bit longer, but thanks for sticking around. Uh, you can follow me. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably follow me on Twitter. Go follow me on Twitter at Tim underscore NBA. Go make sure to like, well, not, I guess not like, but go subscribe, review the podcast. That really helps us out. If you DM me a review or you subscribe to the Twitch, which is where I'll be putting out a new video soon. And we have our uh, Twitch streams of games, which I think we're going to be doing tomorrow. So keep an eye out for that. We'll be doing a, I think it's a, tr- a stream during the Detroit game. Not locked in, but tentatively we're looking at doing that. But go follow that. Go subscribe to that. If you have an Amazon Prime account, you can subscribe for free. And just reviewing all that stuff helps us out. If you send me a uh, screenshot of that or if you subscribe to the Twitch, you automatically get added to our Discord, which is where you can find us chatting far more frequently and, and sharing you know, Q&A and, and extra videos and all kinds of different stuff, having fun during games. So keep an eye out for that. And and let's let's keep it going, guys. This is a good year. Let's let's go improve upon it. Have a great weekend, everyone, and enjoy the Super Bowl. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.